The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan. This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man. And until you thoroughly tested every last close trusted view, I find the more you think you know, the less you really do. That's true, Dr. Zayas. Where would we be without THC? Cause we know they're lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Yeah, where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show, Greg Carlwood Company. Here we go from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood, and do you ever feel like life has lost its meaning? That so much time and attention is sucked up by the construct and the cage conveniently placed around our ability to do almost anything? A litany of limiting factors that are largely artificial but hold us back nevertheless. Money, time, employment, bureaucracy, logistics, and the always flashy and seductive screen-based everything tend to steal the majority of any given lifetime. And few people ever even ask what life might actually be for or challenge the monstrous matrix of the capstone cabal. Well, if the game has been to make people ignorant of or even enjoy their servitude, then someone somewhere is certainly winning. But today we're going to unpack a lot of what plagues us, examine the suppressed or hidden mechanisms that drive the unadulterated world, and try to get a bead on that almighty truth with a capital T. By talking with a couple of knowledgeable and philosophical freethinkers who lay out much of their mindset and positions on various subjects through the website greekspeak.com where the majority of the content, insights, and ideas come from a man known as the Greek, and the website and methodical presentation of the material is laid out by his associate, the Archon. There you can find detailed articles and podcast episodes covering everything from cosmic censorship, communication, and education, to the corrupted sciences, food and diet, the economy, the legal system, and more. I've certainly enjoyed their work and learned a lot from the insights and curious anecdotes of the Greek, and I'm psyched to get into it with them today. The Greek-speak architects, intellectual explorers of everything, and cultural critics, the Archon and the Greek, welcome to the higher side. Oh, thanks for having us, man. Yes, thanks for having us, Greg. Yeah, this is going to be great. I have heard hours of your material talking together and enjoyed it quite a lot. You cover pretty much all aspects of life, culture, and society. And I've heard the Greek describe himself as someone who's just visiting the earth and taking notes, which I like. But what can you guys tell us about how you forged this relationship, your goals for the Greek speak venture, and ultimately where you've cultivated your knowledge and wisdom that people will find there? Oh, just to give a sort of brief intro, first of all, thank you for having us. I am the Archon which is just really a harmless pseudonym for my youth that I use for making content on the internet. So as far as how we became acquainted, some years back, I'd heard of the Greek from the appearances that he made on different internet radio programs, be that Freeman Fly or elsewhere. And so I eventually reached out to learn more and we would discuss you know, the subjects that he had brought up ranging from politics to science to finance. But more than anything else, he was really able to unpack the nature of everyday life as a sort of mirage that's being upheld by various institutions like the media and pop culture, and also to objectify that as something that was malevolent in its origins, which most people don't pay attention to. And so, you know, that just led to more conversations over the years. And I would eventually create the Greek Speak website, which I will specify has a unique spelling of 
S-P-E-E-K at the end, so not S-P-E-A-K, greekspeak.com, and, you know, compiled some articles there, and we later did a podcast on these various subjects, so anyone can check that out at their leisure. And yeah, I'll let the Greek sort of elaborate on where he's at now and some of the projects that he has going on. Oh, okay. I'm at the same place I was pretty much when I came into this world, still trying to figure things out and just trying to describe what we can garner and gain from our perception. I would say the lifelong endeavors and experiences that we have here are all based on our input, whatever we get basically from our parents, society, on and on and on. And when we look for an equivalent, a physical equivalent or a perceivable equivalent in the world to what we've been told, it's sort of hard to find. So we have to sit back and just trust what we've been told and go along with it. I think the human on the planet right now, I call them surface-dwelling Earth inhabitants, and very specific about that because there's much more than just being on the surface, is very, very domesticated. And just to cut to the chase, you know, back in, I think, what the recent 2020 events that happened showed very much, let's say an example, literally what happens when you have a domesticated being. How difficult would it be, for example, if you have some domesticated beings, we call them pets, and it's not convenient to have them anymore. You just put them down, don't you, right? And no one really balks about that too much. So that's just a very quick cut to the chase kind of point of how to perceive things. And again, I say I'm just visiting this planet taking notes because how else can one objectify? Pretty much the point of view that I have is when you become objective, you are sort of on the sidelines, but still a participant in the field, let's say. One of the things that I constantly harp on is if everyone wanted to just turn Everything on the planet, you know, the entire society into a paradise, I'd say, have at it, but I want nothing to do with it. And if you all just wanted to destroy each other and create utter chaos, have at it, I want nothing to do with it, <laughs> is the stance that I usually take. <laughs> I like it. And you say surface-dwelling Earth inhabitants. Well, that is a curious phrase, specifically surface-dwelling. This is not where I plan to go with this, but I am really intrigued by things that could exist or life underneath the surface. What say you? Oh, clearly evident. You know, here's the metaphor that lets the overarching metaphor. Okay, Greg, I just built a new house. Okay. And I have new furniture coming, right? Why not? And uh furniture truck arrives. Do I place all of the furniture on the roof and just live on the roof all year long? Or do I put them inside the house and live inside where I have the comfort and control of, you know, living in a house offers, right? I mean, if you had someone place all their furniture, bedroom, living room, whatever, on the roof of a building, they're subject to all the surface weather, attacks, lack of privacy, right? But an intelligent being would definitely dwell inside, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. So, you know, we're sort of subject to the however you want to take it, visuals that were given by quote-unquote NASA and government agencies of what's going on, let's say, quote-unquote, with other planets, and they all look barren on the surface. And that's a clear mark of a potential of a highly evolved society that would be dwelling inside the house instead of on the surface. Very simple analogy there for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've used the analogy of 
nature and what it creates and basically, you know, fruits. Look at fruits. Like, they're always far more interesting inside than outside. You look at an orange, it's just a rind on the outside. All the good stuff is in the middle. And nature seems to produce things that are within that kind of framework. So what about the earth itself? Wouldn't the most interesting parts be inside based on what nature tends to produce? And we now know there are forests and giant oceans inside the surface. So I agree with you that it's logical to be inside, but not all things that are logical actually happen. What do you think is actually down there? Or what could you say about a potential intelligent being being down there, another branch off of uh, humanity, perhaps? Sure. I would suggest that do I have a direct relationship that I knowingly know from beings from there? I would say no. But we have lots of, let's call them myths and legends for those that want to subscribe to that. No, I don't have any direct knowledge, but I would suggest basic logic and reasoning using, you know, the roof and furniture analogy to be a place to go. And the criticism that I offer to the public at large is basically what I see on the surface. That's why I denote it as surface-dwelling earth inhabitants. There's many ways to go with that. So we're just on the surface of a very, very dynamic thing. Just like if you look at fruit, for example, it's more interesting on the inside. One thing is the silent power of things that grow. It's incredible when you look at things that grow, trees, fruit, plants, and so on, that are attached to the earth. You know, it's the conversion, let's say, or transmutation of water and soil into these wonderful things based on the topography or the program in the seed, right? You can have the same soil and water, and the programming of the seed will yield whatever, you know, corresponding fruit there is. And it's basically an atomic transmutation into all these things, and it's extremely dynamic, yet it's silent, very quiet, and it's, like you said, very interesting on the inside, and they all bear a geometric structure that have more in common than we give it. For example, the apples and oranges analogy, meaning they're very different, but they do share an archetype, a geometry that's very similar. And I would say that if we go back to the surface, there's also a dynamic that's very much shared there. If you look at all the cultures on the Earth, for example, they're diverse based on various histories. And even if you look at the corresponding current culture of all the surface-dwelling Earth inhabitants of various nations or so, they carry on things from their history and their culture. But the thing that they all have in common is their gullibility. And those that seem to have the upper hand and control of, let's say, the one world Earth uh, or the one world order kind of concept rely on people's gullibility. And unfortunately, people are very reliable. Yeah, well said. No argument here. And so in the cosmic censorship episode, the Greek says we need to ask the philosophical question, is man supposed to be as he is today, essentially property, numbered, labeled, and controlled. Well, I think most of us listening would agree that we've been captured, but getting a handle on how man is supposed to be outside of this capture is harder to identify. What would you say about that, the way things should be or even could be? Yeah, I would suggest that the 
overarching criticism or what we see the condition, the overarching condition, here's the hard part, is supposed to be the way it is right now at this time. One loose analogy would be when you have an infant, do they usually need diaper changes and what happens if you don't? right? And because their diapers are being changed and it's kind of critical, what happens if they're ignored or left to their own volition, let's say? It's not going to work out well. So I would say that things are the way they're supposed to be now, but there is something about, let's just say, the voluntary nature of things. I use that very loosely because most things are in that category. We choose to be that way. So I would offer there's a gradient or different levels of choices that can be made that you can actually be the baby that needs the diaper change or not. And that's where I, I instill the concept of cosmic censorship, meaning it's not tangible. It's something that, that is a limit on each individual and with the society as a whole. But it's even though it's overarching and intangible, once it's acknowledged that there is a limitation that pretty much leads to the gullibility. It can pretty much be almost dealt with at that point. There's not much else you have to do but acknowledge that you are being censored. Mm-hmm. And I do find that term provocative, cosmic censorship. You don't say elite cabal censorship. This kind of implies a layer of deception or blockage from truth at a level higher than human even. Where does that come from, and how has it affected humanity throughout the ages? Well, I would say where it comes from maybe at this point is not important, just like when the, let's say, something is delivered to your home, again, the furniture, you can pretty much, through labeling and loose association, say, well, this came from here and it was made by these individuals, but there's so much more involved in that. And then there's the point where you could be completely removed and you know many american children are asked where milk comes from and they say well it comes from the store right mm-hmm. <laughs> so at this point i don't have a direct answer for that but i do see through the commonality the transcultural transnational transhistoric effects of this being persistent throughout society so i'm not so sure of the source of it and i think giving it cosmic which harkens back to the greek word meaning worldly basically but not just limited to man's world Fair enough. Yes, it makes me think about just the structure of reality. And you'll hear a lot of gurus and spiritualists talk about a soul school, that this reality is somewhat structured to be a a process of enlightenment or curiosity or exploration. And cosmic censorship kind of speaks to me as something adjacent to a process of discovery that it can be discovered if you get away from all the distractions that are put in front of us and you actually explore the natural reality, things will be revealed to you in layers or systematically. What do you think about that? Well, yes. And, you know, when you describe something having layers, it still comes to you as a whole, doesn't it? And you could almost look at all the layers at once and then just zero in and focus on one if you'd like. but unfocusing on the layers and just looking at the whole package as it comes to you, then you'll notice that what the whole package has in similarity is that all these layers are contained in it. And even though they do look different, they tend to be 
repeats just maybe cross-hatched or going across each other, but they're repeats of almost the same thing amongst all the layers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I see that. We sound very philosophical right now, by the way. We haven't gotten <laughs> to any, we haven't bitten into any meat and bones yet. Oh, well, here comes the meat. So <laughs> one of my favorite subjects that you guys have unpacked is the episode on science, really just how various scientific disciplines have been co-opted and controlled. The most interesting aspect to me in all of this is what's been lost and trying to restore these discarded disciplines like alchemy or a better understanding of natural biology or seemingly exotic technologies. And let's start with the technologies, the real nuts and bolts, literally, because we hear about anti-gravity devices and the work of people like T. Townsend Brown. I've heard the Greek mention the NIMSA group, something not a lot of people talk about. Well, what can you tell people about some of the examples of technologies and really transportation systems that have been kept from them in exchange for metered, highly controllable systems that limit how free we could actually be? Wow. Okay. In this case, again, if I brought up something as simple as electricity, yes, you walk into a room, it's dark, you reach over on the wall, hit a switch, and the light comes on, right? All the way, you know, used in every way you can imagine from what they call power plants to, you know, batteries not included, they still are able or not able to describe exactly or explain what it is. They can describe it, but they cannot explain it. That is a perfect example of the intangible being relied on and how it affects the way we live. In terms of transportation, just to, let's say, jump to the most important part, the buzzword is anti-gravity, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It seems like once we have that to our avail, we won't need roads and supposedly we won't need the fuels we use and all this other stuff. There's an understanding of gravity that is, let's say, a misunderstanding. In other words, the understanding that we're given makes it unworkable. First of all, many people call it a force. And if you look at the actual referencing of gravity, it is not a force. It's simply an acceleration. We kind of examine it as a force because when we, let's say, drop a brick on our foot, we feel the force of that brick. But that's not gravity. That is the brick accelerating through gravity. And then the final force is the contact with your foot. So just like, for example, let's say back to transportation devices, one thing that you look at, I don't like calling them automobiles because they're not really autonomous. They're engine-driven wagons, okay? Mm -hmm. And not motor vehicles because motor means electric. Engine is the way we use them, but we're going into the motors now anyway. One of the things, one of the fads with those things is to make them more aerodynamic so you have less drag, right? Mm -hmm. All right, so it seems like everything in nature seems to be about resistance. And if you have, let's say, uh, three portals or three openings, and an object is to go through one of those openings, it will naturally choose the one that offers what? The least resistance, right? Mm -hmm. Give an example. I think it's Scientific American in the mid-1800s or later part of the 19th century did an article about a 600-mile-per-hour subway car in New York City. Are you familiar with this? Have you heard it? No, I haven't. Yeah, I think it's like 1870-something. Don't hold me. I'm just paraphrasing. Scientific American, when they just first came out, 600-plus mile per hour underground subway car. Well, it sounds like, what? What is he talking about, right? Yeah. It was not a very long stretch. What they did was it was basically air-driven. They pushed 
air behind the subway car and they created a vacuum in front of it. So as long as the air pushing behind it and the vacuum in front of it were in balance, it doesn't matter how fast it's moving, it will never see any resistance, right? Mm -hmm. And this was achieved uh, 150 plus years ago. And it was, you know, used as an example. Of course, it was shelved and put away. So when we go back to the meme of the anti-gravity, if it's an acceleration, well, what is it? It's very simple. Nature always sets up movements based on levels of pressure and direction. So in essence, if we sense that the gravity is pulling us down, well, we're moving, let's say, from a high altitude to a low altitude, that is an illusion that we're being pulled. How about the idea that there is this ephemeral force, or it could be empirical, known as the ether, and away from the Earth, the pressure is higher, and as we go closer to the Earth, the pressure is lower. So we're actually just feeling a pressure gradient. So once this is understood, where we just decrease the resistance on one end and increase the resistance on the other, we have motion towards the direction of the decreased resistance. And this is the basis of electricity, of what they call gravity, of what we call even just air conditioning vents, the way the air moves into the room and returns back to the air conditioner to get recirculated again. It's all about differences in pressure. And once this is taught as the basics of, let's say, what we call our sciences, then we have an opening into, you know, uh, open thought and development as we can, but we don't at this time. Mm. Yes, the way it's usually explained to me by, say, the alternative scientists, I like to say the natural scientists, the ones who are kind of looking at the world the way you're describing it. We say alternative, but that kind of implies that the mainstream is primary and alternative is secondary when it really should be the other way around. But I'm led to believe that the Earth has a negative charge, that a lot of what we call gravity is a byproduct of electricity, and that if we can counter the negative charge, you know, two negative magnets repel each other, then we can start to play around with transportation modalities that really would blow people's mind because they're operating in an incorrect framework. Is that kind of how you see it, that anti-gravity is really just countering the Earth's natural negative charge? Well, you just opened up a big can of worms. When we say charge and all this, it's like charge of what? Is it electrical? Is it physical? Is it, you know, emotional? You know, it's actually all of that. Let me just give you an example. There's a, a little meme that went around the internet for a while on how the big jumbo jets, they don't really use the fuel that they purport to use based on their fueling sheets, you know, say they need 5,000 gallons of gas, but the fuel tanks can't hold more than 2,000. So how are they flying, right? Have you heard this before? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was someone that went around. It's kind of obscure. If maybe it could be found. And they were asking aircraft engineers and pilots, what really makes these airplanes fly then? And he says, well, it's really that everyone that's on the plane and is directing the plane and working on the plane believes that they do. Weird. <laughs> that's how they work. Yeah, it's really weird. So now we're in a twilight zone kind of reality when we're trying to find the quote-unquote notable science, you know, notable science meaning like, you know, referencing material, right? Stuff you write down and is repeatable. So when we say charge and things like that, again, we have to be able to define the thing and explain it a little bit better 
than just the descriptions that we get. So a negative charge would be, for example, the part that is taking away or creating the suction or the vacuum, and the positive charge would be the one that's pushing. And that could be done, again, physically, electrically, and emotionally. Hmm. Well, now you're sounding like Rudolf Steiner with the different layers of adding emotion to, to concepts like this, scientific concepts. Yeah, very interesting stuff. So this more accurate understanding could potentially give way to technologies that work in this framework far earlier than people would expect, because right now we have this combustion-based inaccurate model of how physics works. And if you just peel that back, you can find examples of people who made technologies that work in this system a long, long time ago, right? Yeah, I would suggest there was a little more accuracy in the verbiage and the language that was used. You know, you said combustion engine, you know, for example, if you're using a gasoline engine, you know, down at the floor, you have the brake and the other thing they call the gas pedal, don't they, right? It's really an air pedal. <laughs> when you push that thing down, it opens, let's say, the butterfly in the carburetor or the fuel injector to let more air in, and then the amount of air is measured and then determines the amount of fuel that's put in. So we, if we change our language and our perception, we'll see things a little different. We're not really putting gasoline, let's say, for example, in cars to burn the gasoline. Because gasoline actually doesn't really burn in a closed container. It's the vapor part that burns, right, on the top. We're actually burning the air. That's why you could substitute gasoline for hydrogen and propane, like forklift in a warehouse, right? So we're, we're chasing after creating, again, a pressure difference in the air. And eventually that could be tweaked and modified. But from working on spark plugs and throttle bodies and easily doubling the mileage of a quote-unquote combustion engine that doesn't have computer controls, and the reason I'm saying this is because if you go to a new car factory, when the car rolls off of the assembly line, you'll see a guy with a, looks like a laptop or something, and they tune the engine because some of the cars that come out of the factory, let's say it's supposed to get 20 miles to the gallon, right? Some might come out getting five miles to the gallon. Well, that's no good. We have to make it 20. And some might come out making 60 miles to the gallon. Well, that's no good. We have to make it 20. So they tune the engine using the computer. And... Unfortunately, just to jump over to a thing, they have something called an oxygen sensor or a fuel sensor. If it's really supposed to be a pollution control device, shouldn't it be like a pollution sensor? Hmm. So again, the language and all these other things, but let's say a combustion engine like a lawnmower or something that doesn't have a computer on it can easily be doubled just you know, with a few hours worth of work or not even uh, just adjusting the throttle body and the spark plug. But once you have something that has a computer control, it instills what I call a sabotage, mm. right? So again, the computer is, a, let's say, a thought machine. Think of it that way, right? So again, it goes back to the thinking. <laughs> I like it. So going back to the NIMSA group, I've heard you say that they used to call airplanes sky lubricators, kind of a you know mm -hmm. jokey pejorative saying that their technologies were, were better because they were working on advanced airships. And I've also heard you tell a story that you found in a text from a university library that was taken from a garbage dump in Libya, and yep. that spoke to something that sounds like a piece of technology out of time. Talk to us about these examples that show us that this is really the reality when you dig and you find these little anecdotes. 
Well, the thing is, we, we're subject to what they call resets, whether it's every few centuries or every few millennia. And give an example. It's not very different if you lived a very long time ago in the way that you're thinking now. Without giving a direct example, because there are many, I think there's a lot of stuff on the internet that's dedicated to uparts and things like that. But one thing I just want to bring up is that when we are, let's say we, meaning humans, on the surface, go to a certain technological level, they're sort of knocked down by some form of catastrophe, whether it's extreme social catastrophe, you know, war, economics, plagues, or a natural catastrophe like the Great Flood, for example, and other minor catastrophes. We get back to a situation where we're just desperate to be alive. And then eventually we rediscover these things as being new, and they're really not. I always give a metaphor. The only thing that changes, well, I shouldn't say the only thing that changes, but there are things that change every time the society reaches a technological apex, for example. And the example that I want to give is if you brought someone in from the past, let's say, to the future, what would they be amazed at? Most people would say, oh, the internet, electricity, airplanes. And I suggest they won't. The thing that they will find to be the hardest thing to conceive is how we're dumping asphalt and covering our roads with this black tar everywhere, right? Because that was very well known in their society then, and it was had very limited use. So I would suggest that it's not microwaves or radios or computers that they would find hard to adjust to, but all of this black tar petroleum that we're coating our roads with. How impractical is that? I'm just giving that as a way to just look at the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And only because I mentioned that story from the university library in this garbage dump in Libya that they extracted. Basically, you talked about ancient Greek suppression, where it seemed to be a story about this guy who was scaring people away from the markets with this thing that he had, which was described as a horseless mm -hmm. wagon that spit out fire, smoke, and lightning. And so the merchants were like, hey, cops, you got to go get this guy and do something with him because people won't come out and it's stopping commerce. And yep. I don't know if there's much of a conclusion there, but it's just an example of these stories peppered throughout history that are never elevated to the surface. But in aggregate, you just can tell that history is a lot different than uh, it's presented to us. Like you say, these resets. Right. And we're sort of at the point of another one now. There's a couple of people that are bringing up the topic on the internet that can be researched. And I would suggest, you know, if you're interested in the subject of the resets, go ahead and look for it. But I would say that what you do on a day-to-day -day and how you perceive yourself and those around you and, and the situation that you're in, meaning whatever society you're in, takes precedent on that. Because one thing that you'll find through history is those that survived the resets were sort of in a different, more, let's say, elevated spiritual, mental, emotional state. And in some cases, you know, it was kind of like you were wished you were not one of the survivors because it was so rough. But on the other side, you know, there's a preservation element that those that did survive were almost like selective survivors because they had just some aspects about them that were, quote unquote, might I say, superior than the rest. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. And I wanted to bring the Archon back in here a little bit. I know that 
you're primarily the guy who works on the website and and you know you just kind of allow the Greek to do his thing. But I'm curious your thoughts on some of the stuff we're talking about, the technologies, the physics, mm-hmm. this alternative model that seems to exist outside of the mainstream. What do you think? Well, those things are very interesting. I mean, in general, I think that when we talk about cosmic censorship, that's something that should be contemplated. It's not so much, you know, a lack of information that brings it about because we know that information is in overproduction today. I think the real thrust of of something like that lies in preventing comprehension. It's this force that disassembles intelligible narratives and renders conclusions unreachable, which is why a lot of people live in this sort of unawareness of where society stands and what's going to happen next, which is a mindset that I do think should be scorned and avoided because it reveals that ultimately people have a preference for the things that are most like themselves. So a person that's ignorant is ultimately going to be drawn to things that are ignorant. And that in order to reach some type of higher level of enlightenment, you kind of have to separate yourself from that. It starts with that sort of mindset switch that the things that we've been told are normal are really the things that are dangerous. I do remember some time, maybe six or seven months ago when I was getting a haircut at a friend's place and he had a sticker on the table in front of me where it said, beware normal people. (laughs) And I found that to be slightly comical because that is very much true. It is these types of things that are often thought of as being innocuous in our society, quote unquote, normal people, the school system, the financial system, which actually are the source of a lot of our troubles and our inability to gain the proper orientation. So I am not as specialized on the matters of science as the Greek is, although I'm learning about that slowly but surely. But what I have found always caught my attention was the absurdity of this thing that we call society and the way that institutions misdirect everybody's attention towards things that are unimportant. Yeah, yeah, I certainly agree. A lot of times we are putting the target kind of on academia and the Royal Society and those who injected all this into the culture and over many decades, centuries, have crafted the false paradigm that the normal people eat up. And I think you're right. So the Archon, that's just a fun pseudonym, as you say. But I am curious about the Greeks' thoughts on real Archons or the term which suggests there are spiritual forces, mind parasites, that kind of feed on us, that direct reality. Some say they're attracted to power, they can identify power, and our own elite are possessed by these archons. That's obviously a Gnostic trope. But what are your thoughts on influences that are not really seen, not even acknowledged, non-physical influences, spiritual, some might say? Oh, I would say definitely. Sometimes the thing is measured by the effect more than what it actually is right? Actually, most of the current science, all of the probes and measuring equipment doesn't really measure the thing. It measures what the thing does. And when we look at what the thing does, meaning the spiritual beings all the way, let's say, when we say spiritual, non-corporeal, non-physical, down there's a gradient to where then you have physical beings, but they don't exhibit the qualities that average humans do. Let's say they live longer, and they have powers, let's say, like walking through walls would be one meme that you one can bring up. And then they transition down to the average human, 
that might have insight into those and might use have some of that power, which we call, let's say, the masters. And then it transitions down to the students of the masters, and then it transitions down to, need I say, the normie. Hmm. So that would be like a gradient. And if we see what the normie is capable of, and going the gradient now backwards, let's say upwards, not necessarily because upwards means better, just in power, we start to see a removal of what the normie world is, and we start to see a point where the normie world is mixed in with the supernatural and super powerful world, and then we rise up and it becomes all supernatural above that. So there's a gradient there, and there's an interbreeding of both mind and physicality from when you go up and down through the scale. Again, I think that from just looking at what's been memorialized, the reason things are memorialized through history, written whether it's clay tablet or parchment or paper or now digitally, when something is memorialized, it's because it's important for posterity, for people to know, like people who are not present, whether it's geographically present or in time, to have this information carried over. What is memorialized about what I just mentioned and what you asked about, let's say, super beings all the way down, is very different to what people, let's say, everyday people, let's say, if you were to ask them about them, have to say. What you will find memorialized is a much more tangible story or structure than what people think about. So when we say that there are these beings, let's just say superior in power, there's quite a bit of information about their characteristics and how they maintain that power, where the average person that thinks about the subject is not aware of. Yeah. And for people who might wonder what you actually mean by that, what are those characteristics? Because we do have people like Charles Fort. We can go back even further to biblical texts where angels and things are described far differently than the religions project them. But when you get to the core of the characteristics of these super intelligences or super beings, what do they look like to you or what, what makes them up? Well, you know, the interesting thing the easiest to discuss are the anthropomorphic ones. Like if you go to the biblical text, for example, man was made in their image, let's say, right? The gods. They lack physicality or the limits of physicality, but yet can manifest as such if needed or by, if so desired. And then that leads more into the question, what is physicality? You know, we were sort of discussing science earlier, and I would suggest that from the mystical point of view, even to the what is considered contemporary science, one will actually, if you delve into the subject, there is no physicality. It's just a state of motion. And an example of that would be if you have, let's say, a typical desk fan or a bicycle wheel on your table, when it's not moving, you can put your hand in between the blades or in between the spokes of the bicycle wheel just fine. But once it's rotating, if you approach any of the area, it will seem like a solid object, right? Because of its movement. So there's something about movement and oscillation, frequency, as it's usually described, that these beings have control over. And the easiest ones to discuss are the ones that are quote-unquote anthropomorphic, like, for example, from the biblical story or angels. You know, we don't think of something that we don't recognize, we recognize them as being sort of human in form. And I would suggest that is one aspect of it and the easiest one to discuss. So imagine 
an ability to dematerialize or not have a physical form based on your control over the motion of things. Yeah, that's super interesting. I don't hear people talking about motion or vibration. Vibration, yes, but not so much in the motion sense. But when you listen to some of these descriptions, they sometimes appear as rotating concentric rings or some kind of light. Uh, things that do suggest that that might be a mechanism that they're controlling that alters the perception or allows them to be seen or unseen from people that they're trying to encounter. Oh, absolutely. Eventually, we might discuss, or you'll find in the Greek-speak discussion, is the in-your-face examples that are put out in society and memorialized and easily referenced. One of the easiest ones to come across that is a shocker if you're perceptive is I tell people, go to the internet and do a search for a cross-section of intestines or cross-sections of lungs or cross-section of skin. And this is for an anatomical drawing. And then I would suggest do a split screen and type in a browser, a cross-section of a steel-belted radial tire. And you compare the two. Structurally, the two meaning whether it's a cross-section of the human lungs or animal lungs or skin or intestines, compare the cross-section with a steel-belted radial tire, and you'll see structurally they're identical, structurally. In other words, nothing passes through there. So we're constantly told that we absorb, right, nutrition, even the alternatives. Oh, yeah, we have uh, something that will, you will absorb more nutrition, <laughs> you know, and it lowers blood pressure. And we're like, well, how is that absorption happening? Look at all of the hydrophobic layers in the intestine. Nothing goes through that. How is it working, right? So there's the concept of induction, uh, which is a very simple concept, for example. They have these induction cooktop stoves. It's a glass top stove, and you can have a pot of water boiling on it. And you just move the pot off to the side, put your hand right on the glass top. It's room temp. And you move the pot right over the glass top again, and it starts to boil again, you know, through induction. Most of the devices that we use use coils and capacitors, let's say, but coils work on induction. You know, I have a power toothbrush, and when it goes into the charger, there is no metal contact at all. It's just the plastic bases come near to each other, and there's a LED that blinks and lets me know it's charging, you see? So once we understand and start using in the concept of induction, whether it's from the part of the creative part or the part that creates locomotion, you know, when it's taught to us as young children, then we'll have a society that'll be, you know, more advanced and moving forward. Hmm. Yeah, you're touching on something I was going to bring up, the importance of induction versus absorption. It might be a little fuzzy to some people out there because they both kind of invoke this taking in sort of mechanism. But you've talked about the biological vacuum that it needs yep. to be studied, that blood pressure is a farce. Yep. All of our concepts of how biology functions are by looking at things that are dead, which is idiotic. And it's the how the biological vacuum is maintained question that actually starts the research. But sadly, nothing on this has been done since Victor Schauberger in the 1930s. Well, what are some of these biological processes that we could correct the record on and help demystify how biology really works? Well, what's interesting is that 
things that are living versus things that are not living do have the difference of what we call, you know, life, essentially. And that is something that we all kind of, yeah, well, Greek, that sounds very obvious. But when we get into defining it and explaining it, the biological vacuum is one of the core principles to examine. For example, if you look at the human body, all of the fluids in the human body, you'll see that there's no way that there is anything direct, like a tool or a machine like the heart or anything that is moving all the fluids evenly, based on the hydrodynamic principles that are taught. But if we consider that the pressure inside the body is slightly less than the outer environment, then we have the freedom of the liquids to move in the direction of where that vacuum sustains more vacuum. Essentially, it's a big, broad subject. But when you combine that with induction, which is where you have a barrier where things cross immaterially, where you've heard, you know, the elite pretty much invented science fiction to disclose to us what's going on in something I call cosmic information in a cosmic law, information is information. It doesn't matter if you call it fact or fiction. The thing is, did you get the idea? If you want to call it fact or fiction or truth or, or non-true, that's up to you. So they have this thing called beam me up, Scott, with the transporter or the food replicator that they showed in Star Trek. And that should be taken very seriously because it's not a very, let's say, far off notion into what's actually happening in every living organism. Hmm. So they obviously have twisted the truth and they describe mechanisms in the body that are not exactly accurate. They want to suppress the reality of this induction. Well, where would that study lead? Why is it so important to them to say, well, your body just absorbs the nutrients rather than this induction process? What are they afraid of us discovering there? Okay, the thing is, are they afraid? Are they fear-based? You know, there's a big meme about that being fear-based, right? I don't think they're that much afraid in the way the situation is currently. I think what they're doing is, one thing you'll see in the Greek speak I use a lot, they're pranking. It's a form of pranking. Hmm. It brings entertainment. You know, give an analogy. I visited another world once. This is just an analogy. And the biggest industry on that world was Kevlar or bulletproof underwear. And I asked why. It says because it's a custom, it's customary to put a thumbtack down on a seat before anyone sits on it. And to prevent the pain, they have a big industry that produces Kevlar underwear that everyone buys. So I suggested, we'll just stop putting thumbtacks on seats. And they said, well, you can't do that. We've been doing it for a long time. And if it starts to catch on, those that produce that bulletproof Kevlar underwear are going to really come after me, aren't they? Because hmm. I'm messing up their business. So it's a combination of pranking. It's a combination of control, a combination of culture. The reason why one of the things that sets gasoline prices, for example, is how much do you have to pay to go a certain distance, hmm. right? That's why a lot often diesel fuel costs more because you get better mileage on diesel fuel. It's very interesting. So I would suggest that it's just a strict control system. There is an emotional component to the induction, meaning 
if you're in a bad emotional state, you usually won't perform as well as if you're in a good emotional state. When I say perform, I mean in your daily life, whatever it is, even just sitting down to have a meal. So there's an emotional component, an energetic component, and a physical component to everything we can possibly discuss. Hmm. I like it. And let me ask you about alchemy. It's another subject that has a rich history, but it all sort of dries up about 100 years ago. We're told that's because the work was really theoretical and didn't actually constitute a real science. Materials can't be transmuted into other materials. What are your thoughts on the field of alchemy and its actual value? Well, the basic definition of alchemy, well, basically in a loose way, is where you involve spirit or mind into the process. And the individual is a variable or component in whatever process you're doing. And that goes to chemistry, for example, when we discuss alchemy directly. And chemistry is just a matter of synthesizing things or making things that you might need that are not around, right? The typical one would be turning base metals into gold, right? Because gold, let's say, is desirable or whatever. But I would suggest that alchemy, again, if the mind component, the emotional component, and the state of whoever is working on the process is removed publicly, in other words, from the public mind, then the public becomes very dependent on what's put out to them. And they have to, quote unquote, they become less powerful and more dependent. Again, it's a dependency aspect. But I would suggest that alchemy, and I can give you, a, let's just say, sort of indirect and sort of direct, that the schools of alchemy have gone underground and they're still being used today by the large chemical companies' industrial concerns. They're definitely being used today. If you look at the field of what's called catalysts, for example, if you have vegetable shortening, it's like material that looks like a putty. It's not liquid. It's basically water and oil mixed together, but you can't mix water and oil together. But if you run it over nickel beads, a catalyst, nickel does not add itself to the mix, but because it went over the nickel catalyst, now the water and oil don't separate, right? There are processes still in metal alloys. I'll give an example. Beryl bronze, which is one of the hardest, well, most durable, and not hardest, but durable in bearing, meaning you have two metals rubbing up against each other, a bearing surface. There is a particular alloy that's of many alloys, but beryl bronze, where you have beryllium, copper, tin, zinc, and other things mixed together. If you melt those metals and put them together, you're not going to get beryl bronze, the qualities of beryl bronze. What must be done is while all those metals are molten in a vat, one must break off a fresh green branch from a hardwood tree and stir the molten metal with this fresh green branch and drop it in. Then you will get the qualities of beryl bronze. Now, if that doesn't sound like alchemy being used today, I don't know what is. It's still being used today. It's just not public. Hmm. Yeah, these are the little anecdotes that I just find really unique about hearing you speak. Another aspect of like the intelligence of nature and the symbiosis that you've said kind of in passing is that poison ivy won't grow unless it's in the presence of white oak and white oak bark is the remedy for poison ivy. Now, this is something that I did not know. I got poison ivy a lot when I was young, running through the woods of the Midwest. I didn't realize it had this symbiosis and I'm curious about other examples of that and the intelligence of nature and how the natural world 
has a lot of this baked in, and we are just so divorced from the natural world these days. We're in these concrete jungles that even a little example like that is intriguing. Well, yeah, I like giving or send people to the direction of what's called macrobiotics or the yin and yang concept. It's an Asian. What I don't like about recommending it is that it's very Asian-oriented, and people think they have to be Japanese or Chinese to understand it, right? The yin and yang symbol is very much interrelated, where I would suggest that the concept of balance, every culture had it, but well, a lot of Westerners are sort of turned off because they think I'm trying to make them Asian-centric, which hmm. I'm not. But it's the only place that it's been preserved, right? The concept of yin and yang, expansive, contractive, right? and properties and how the balancing actually works. And I would suggest that the remedy or the solution must be in place prior to or at the same time the problem or the malady is brought into existence. They're both, it's kind of like, let's just use a, a dummy load kind of term, like God and the devil came together, right? You can't have negative or good without bad. You know, they come in together you know, I use Star Wars as an example. People think that, you know, the Jedi have to defeat the Sith. It's not about that. It's never in the storyline. The storyline is to put it in balance. Mm. It's not to eliminate one or the other. Sith are not trying to eliminate the Jedi, and the Jedi are not trying to eliminate the Sith. It's just to keep them in balance. When one gets much stronger than the other, there's an imbalance. And this is pretty much how nature works. I like it. And just to step back to alchemy a bit, I've heard you say that if you just examine the mechanisms of the body, you can see alchemy and transmutation as a part of general biology. When you are low on something, you don't take that thing, you take something else that helps your body produce that thing. Talk yes. to us about that a bit. A simple direction to point people at is to look up the work of Louis Kevran, K-E-V-R-A-N. He did the biological transmutation experiments, which about a decade ago, I had met someone just by chance that was part of one of those experiments in the Moroccan desert. But what he had done was examined, and also using the basic scientific nomenclature, a chicken egg and how it's mostly calcium, pure calcium. And he decided to eliminate anything that a group of control you know, chickens in the experiment were eating with calcium in it at all. So these chickens were eating food that was devoid of calcium. They went through great lengths to make sure that none of the feed had any calcium content. But the chickens still produced a robust calcium egg, and they didn't have any bone loss or beak loss or anything else. So they, he discovered basically that it was traces of magnesium and sodium inside the living being that created the elemental calcium. And the same goes for humans with potassium, for example. As an electrolyte, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I, I eat bananas because they have potassium, right? Well, it's actually, again, you need a high-quality sodium and physical activity for the body to produce potassium in the blood. So he has a, I wouldn't say extensive work, but he has many, many direct examples like that. Louis Curvran would be an easy place to check out. Let me just throw one thing in there. One of the metrics that they use for food is calories. Right mm -hmm. now, <laughs> the calorie counting thing, it, it was really crazy a decade ago. It's not so much anymore, and even prior to a decade ago. But let me just suggest the caloric measurement is basically the amount of temperature it takes to raise one gram or one cubic centimeter of water. It's a very simple metric. If you see 
how it's done, it looks basically in a lab or it's a glass tube. They put the object they want to find how many calories it has in the glass tube and they seal it, purge it with pure oxygen. Something looks like a spark plug goes boom. Everything just completely burns. It's submerged in a bath of water and they measure the amount of water and the amount of heat it give off and there's your caloric output. The only thing with that is that if you were to eat a banana for potassium, right, as most people say, let's say a banana's got 80 calories. When you poop it, can you burn that poop? <laughs> of course, you can continue burning it. So unless you know anyone who poops charcoal, the calories are an irrelevant metric for food. Hmm. So unless you're pooping pure carbon, uh, it's an irrelevant metric, like blood pressure and other things that are being, uh, blood sugar is another one. So, <laughs> Well, let's get into blood a little bit more. I mean, I was always fascinated by Rudolf Steiner talking about blood, saying that it's basically a spiritual substance or a substance that links the spiritual and physical and that it's something you can't actually get at outside of the body because once it's oxygenated, it is a different thing. So it's like really quite curious that it can't really be totally known in a, in a sense because of its where it, where it's kept beneath the skin. And as you mentioned about studying things that are dead, this is not exactly what blood is. Blood needs to be alive and inside the body to be what it naturally is. What are your thoughts on if blood pressure is a farce and blood sugar is a farce? Well, they say that one of the biggest causes of death is heart disease, and that obviously involves the blood. What is going on with the blood and the heart? What's the proper way to think about this stuff? Well, okay, one way to look at it is just even a cursory examination of all of the organs in the body, you'll see that they're all alien to each other, right? Even an early student in the medical field, you'll show him a liver cell and he'll identify it as such, or a cell from the kidneys, identify it as such. They're very, very, or brain cell, if you've ever met anyone who still has any of those, by the way. Hmm. But if you look at all of the cells, they're very distinct, almost as if you have these alien creatures that have come together from different universes or different worlds to work together. And when they were assembled in the body, or actually all living things, mammals especially, and other creatures that are mobile, have all of these alien-looking organs, right? And they're all pretty much there to produce and sustain the blood in the body. They all have their own attribute on what they do. So the blood is essentially the focus. One thing that I would suggest, we said blood pressure is a farce. You know, basically the cuff that restricts blood flow is an unnatural occurrence, and they're basically just measuring the beats in between the pause and the beat of the heart. It's, again, a fallacy of a metric. But I would suggest that the blood is a byproduct or the goal of all of the organs of the body to sustain and produce. So it is very mystical in that aspect. If you study uh, live blood studies, there was, a, I think, a duo of father and daughter in Canada a few decades ago, and they were able to, for a short time, view live blood under a microscope, and they would see little flashes of blue light under the slide, and where the flash of blue light subsided, there would be a new cell developed. It could be a red blood cell. Sometimes it was a white blood cell. Sometimes it was a yeast cell, right? So all of these things were being produced under, let's say, the effects of little flashes of yellow or blue light under the slide, trying to keep the blood alive. Wow. Wow. 
Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that really intrigues me. And just from guests of the past that I've talked to, it seems like the mechanisms of water, electricity, frequency, and vibration are the real underpinning aspects of reality that we should be studying and experimenting with because the results seem almost magical. There's this unknown quality to a lot of things that are going on in nature that we just either take for granted or are completely ignorant of, like that flash of light sort of thing. It seems like in terms of health, we need proper charge. I mean, people, you know, we talked about charge and how that term isn't necessarily uh, descriptive enough, but, you know, walking on the earth seems to matter. Uh, salt seems to help the conductivity of our body and proper structured water seems to help uh, produce healthy cells. Those seem to be some of the biggest components, yet everyone focuses on just diet. Well, I think these other things should be right up there. Yes, and these other things are a state of mind and which lead to emotion, which lead to action, thoughts, and then eventually manifestation. So as we're really nearing the end of this thing, I wanted to ask you about just the way that some of the terms are phrased on the website about what you do. You say that you don't seek approval, you just seek the truth. Sometimes that offends in a culture that is as backwards as this one. Well, as we're coming to the end, other lines you have on the website say, for example, when I tell people that society is in a bad position, they just imagine the current situation being in a worse state, but that's not it. Things are worse than you imagine because of things you don't know anything about. Or the contrast to what people think is going on and what's really going on is so huge that you can't talk about it publicly. Well, I am interested in the rawest of truths, the deepest of rabbit holes, the most taboo truths available. What would you consider to be the most taboo topic that you could speak truth on? Like, what are the truths that sometimes seem to even make other truth seekers get a bit queasy? Okay, that's a really good question, and it doesn't need to be pondered much, basically because of the tools we have. And I say basic tools, most people have access to what I call the stupid rectangle, mm -hmm. right? And the devices that they use. And one of the things that I tell people when this is brought up is if you go and look on the internet for the weirdest, most outlandish conspiracy theory, whether it's like Dulce, you know, the underground base, or spiders on Mars or cloning or anything like that. The reality is even worse than that. It's even more extreme than that. So the most extreme stuff on the internet is probably closer to the truth than you know. Hmm. <laughs> well, I like it, broadly speaking. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know exactly what that means, but I generally well, agree. Yeah, and the thing is to not take it where it drives you insane and don't be prepared to do a public recitation or dissertation on it because it's not going to be accepted. And when I say public, it could be just people within five feet reach of you, but just take in the information. I always say from a cosmic perspective, information is just that. It's not whether you think it's true or not. It's did you get the picture? Do you have the notion? Right? So later on, very often I tell people certain things that can be accessed and I don't like explaining them. Like, for example, the word nice, if you look it up in an etymology, it means foolish, stupid, and senseless. But I, I found that if you tell them, they kind of brush it off or give you a, a chuckle. But if you ask them to look it up themselves, 
it packs like 75% more punch, right? So actually giving a laundry list of what I think is outlandish would be not as impactful as if people looked up what they tend to have a tendency to look up on their own. And I'm suggesting that the weirdest, strangest, most fringe stuff that they could find on the internet is still mild in comparison to what's really going on, possibly. <laughs> yes. Well, that sounds like I'm going to have a job doing this for quite some time, which is going to make the wife and kids happy. Yes. Job um, security for sure. Yeah. Indeed. Well, this has been really interesting and insightful. I appreciate the Archon for getting us together. You guys ended your 10th episode saying you'd be working on a new website for things that people might consider esoteric now, but will be more familiar as time goes on. Is that still the plan? And what sorts of things are you referring to, guys? Well, yeah, that website has actually also come to fruition and it has been concluded. It's called godspeak.com. Oh. I try to be creative with my names, but they invariably fall into the same template. So Godspeak, also with two E's, God, um, S-P-E-E-K. And there's another podcast on there. It didn't progress as far as the Greek speak. It's a sister site, simply because, well, of different things. The so-called pandemic came along, and a lot of my time was taken up with other things. So we did get to episode eight. That should be good enough for most people, though we might conclude it at some point in the future. Also, a few articles on there, not as many as Greek speak. Now that people are starting slowly but surely to take notice of it, I may return to actually completing some of those things. But it's on there for anybody to explore. Oh, man. It's so bittersweet because it's very rare that I miss uh, a whole aspect of a person's work. But these sites aren't necessarily connected. But now I'm seeing you got the ancient world, spirits and soul, the gods, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Eastern religions, very intriguing stuff. I mean, maybe we'll get to it in a, in a future interview, but that is great. I like uh, the formatting of the websites, the presentation of the material. Good stuff, guys. I think uh, what you do is worth people checking out. So Greek Speak, S-P-E-E-K, is the initial website. God Speak, same spelling, is the newer one. Any other links or parting information to give people if they want to dive deeper into what you guys have done? Yeah, I, I'm also uh, doing a current project, current Sonics running with, you could find it at ocelli.com. It's a current project. You go to ocelli.com, spells just like it sounds. And it's a sub-project. It's a subscription only. Uh, it's not open to the public. And it's called Rated Y, The Unculting of Humanity. Huh. <laughs> I like it. Right on. Well, again, thank you so much. You know a lot about a lot, and thanks for doing this. Take care out there, both of you. Thanks. Thank you. Secret Sciences, Cosmic Censorship, Supernatural Beings, and the Biological Vacuum. Oh, my. <laughs> Definitely had to be unexpected guests, which I always like to surprise people with. I like their pseudonyms. I like the cadence with which they speak. I'd say they make a great team, and they pride themselves on trying to talk about raw truth in a whole host of areas at a high level. I think that's something we got a lot of respect for around here, right? Of the subjects they cover, we could have done more on law, government, or military, but it's the secret sciences and hidden physics stuff that I like a lot because 
Thinking about common things in new ways is exciting, and you really can let your imagination run wild in terms of the reality we could be living in if the blockage could be lifted. I like hearing new names of bright minds we can put up alongside Victor Schauberger, Wilhelm Reich, and some of the others. Today, that was Louis Keveron and Rudolf Hoschka, I think is how he pronounced it. But Rudolf Hoschka's work is interesting because he was studying how vitamins work and exposing simple life forms to various things and ultimately found that just proximity was enough to cause an effect or reaction, which might say something about that health and resonance idea. You know, I also like alchemy talk when we can get it. And funny enough, I got off this call and I saw a post about this guy, Stefanovich Rabenikov, by someone who was highlighting it because it was this guy's birthday. He's dead now, but in honor, you know. And Rabenikov was like Schauberger in that he just studied nature and tried to replicate it or create technology based on it. The gist of his story is that he was laying in a field admiring the beauty of nature and he started to feel ill. And then he realized he was resting over the top of a hive of a type of bee that makes their hives in the ground. I can't remember if he dug up the hive or just looked at it and made a structure that mimicked it, but in the lab he would notice the same thing if he waved his hand over this artificial hive. He had some other people do it, and some said waving their hand over it felt warm, some said cold, but clearly there was some kind of field effect going on. He ended up calling it the cavity structure effect. He also did see some magnetic effects and then ended up building these lattice structures into a box, kind of like a suitcase. And he ended up realizing that you could not set things on this box. It repelled them, basically shot them up into the air, just like if you had a briefcase with negatively charged magnetic plates and then tried to slide another one on top of it, it would repel it up into the air and down onto the floor. And this is crazy because there is plenty of video footage of it. That's what I found so damn interesting. Then he made a type of platform with a handle. You could actually ride a little hoverboard thing using the same basic lattice structure that he mimicked from the beehive. Then this video, which was from the Universe Inside You channel, great channel, made some points about scientists saying that the flying physics of several types of beetles don't add up. And the conventional speculation is that they are hovering rather than flying somehow. And of course, if you look at the cross-section of their wings, they share a similar pattern to the hive. And then you think about the ancient world and the Egyptian motifs of the scarab beetle. And you wonder if maybe they respected the beetles so much because that's how they learned this secret of nature. <laughs> Really wild stuff. Check out Universe Within You on YouTube and you can see the whole video. But these are the kind of guys I find most interesting. Probably the most interesting kind of person ever. And so few in the mainstream ever hear about them or their discoveries. So, fun episode overall. I appreciate their time and the work they do. Check out Greek Speak or God Speak if you want to hear them go deeper without me getting in the way. As always, the first hour of the show is good, but the second hour is even better. In this one, we talked about lost technology and the importance of procedure, lawful timekeeping, and the effects of the Pope's work schedule. 
the deeper effects of rulership by artificial time, the importance and effects of seasonal diets. The Greek gave us his discernment guide to life and talked about the 180 inversion principle. We got into aliens and the dog-headed people, Project Looking Glass, ancient relics and E.T. gifts, what it means to say that we're now in the credits of the movie. The Greek talked to us about the dog bowl humiliation ritual that all politicians must partake in, and we talked about the difference between the fringe and the alternative. So go ahead, upgrade to plus, get the full show, and keep the Carlwood train on the tracks. Eight bucks a month, five new shows a month, and one hell of a big archive. And higher side news, well, when it rains, it pours. If my life wasn't hectic enough right now, one of the two main systems we use to run the Plus membership infrastructure had an update that broke compatibility with the other system. They've already released a bug fix, but anyone who had a transaction process in that 48-hour period shows up as inactive in the system. Obviously, support tickets have flooded in, and my guy Mike is not only working to answer all of those, but also wrote a script to correct the rest of the accounts. Most likely before many of you noticed, I think it's like 5% of people were affected, locked out for a day or two. But it should be all fixed now, or it will be fixed very, very soon. These things happen from time to time, but we use good systems, and I hope nobody was greatly inconvenienced. But that said, I think we are going to get all five shows out this month, this one being number four. I got two more recorded from a hotel room over the last few days, so I should have at least a one-show buffer while I try to get the rest of my life in order and get everything set up at home. And with that, let's go to the meetup calendar. April 29th, today, we have the Sin City Conspiracy Enthusiasts hanging out in Las Vegas, Nevada. Tomorrow, April 30th, Asheville, North Carolina. May 6th, Dublin, Ireland. Also May 6th, Sedona, Arizona. Also May 6th, High Springs, Florida at the High Springs Brewing Company. And May 13th at the 7018 Brewery in Elko, Nevada. And we'll leave it there. I like it. Sounds like people are getting together as we speak. Go on in at HiresideMeetups.com and find the other THC fans near you because it is your inoculation from indoctrination. Networks are important and all that. You already know. But that is all she wrote, guys. Thanks again to the Archon and the Greek and to you for listening. I've done my part. Your move, secret science secret keepers, cosmic censorship servants, and consensus-centric thinkers. Your fucking move. Sometimes when I get down, I eat a bunch of corporate junk. Process stuff that makes you fat. Yeah, it's a weak and sickly people making industry. Don't tell me. Don't tell me lies. Discipline is no fun, I find. 
technology and every now and then I 